Let's go ahead and just do one more prayer to transition into a time of teaching. Lord, we thank you for our children. We thank you that you love our children, that uh, the children here in this church are here as signs for us, signs even for those of us wrestling with our disenchantment to remind us of the joy and the love and the faith that is possible. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this church this church and all that is taking place here, we pray, Lord, even now, your spirit would be stirring and moving a new time and a new season as we transition out of the summer, as we're slowly transitioning out of lockdown and restrictions. Lord, may your spirit move in this church so that we could become a beacon of light to the city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to week two of uh, my guest tenure here at Redeemer. I am very excited to be here. Uh, I have been welcomed back, at least for this week, so we'll take it one week at a time. Um, Last week, you may recall, we began with a bit of a sweeping introduction to disenchantment, just in case any of you weren't familiar enough with that sinking dread, that dark cloud that sort of hangs over society right now. I spent a whole Sunday leaning into it. Uh, The couple of definitions that I highlighted last week, disenchantment can mean to be disappointed by someone or something, previously respected or admired, disillusioned. It can be no longer believing in a value of something, uh, especially after having learned the faults that it has. Or, quite simply, it can mean that you are no longer happy, pleased, or satisfied. My hunch is, at some point over the past year and a half-ish that we've been moving through this lockdown and pandemic, some sense of disenchantment has been with you. But I'm very aware as well that the past year and a half, there's been a number of scandals, both politically and globally and across Christendom. And it just feels like there's a lot to be disenchanted with when it comes to our faith. So my hope in this series is that by returning to Jesus, specifically Jesus' invitation to follow him, to follow his practices, we could begin to chart a way through disenchantment. We're not trying to avoid the disenchantment. We're not trying to ignore these heavy disappointments that may have marked your faith journey, but instead, what practices are available that we could begin to pick up together as a community and personally that could help us find our way through the wilderness that is disenchantment? Uh, I, I felt like I set a big stage. A few of you mentioned to me last week after the service, wow, you're really going to have to deliver if that's your setup here for us. Uh, So this week, I am hoping and praying not to somehow make all of your disenchantment go away, but to give you the first sign, the first hope, the first practice. But in order to do so, I want to focus in on a problem of disenchantment first. I want to give just a little more context. There was this experiment that was done back in 1999. We'll see if we go to the next slide. We're going to get an image up. 1999 in all of its glory, if you look closely at that image. Loose jeans, white t-shirts, black t-shirts, plain white sneakers, a style that unfortunately is coming back. I don't know why the 90s have returned. Uh, But in 1999, a psychologist named Daniel Stillman put together a video that he brought in just a ton of participants to watch. 
And in the video, he gives you this task. You can actually search this experiment online and do it yourself. I did it a couple weeks ago. The video begins by telling you, count the amount of passes that take place between the white team. And so if you're like me, I'm a little bit achievement-oriented. I get a little bit energized, even if I don't like to acknowledge it. I'm kind of competitive. Something activates in me. And so I think to myself, I can do this. I can, I can count. And so I begin to count. And as the video is going, there's this other team also passing balls, but I'm focused on the white team. And they're all moving around. And it's a little bit chaotic and disorienting. But I'm going one, two, three, four, five. OK, I've kept it. Uh, six, yep, seven, eight, nine, 10. And sure enough, you get to the end of the video, and I hit 15, 15, 15. OK, yeah, it was 15. And as you're watching the video, this slide then comes up. It says, were you counting the passes? Yes. yes. <laughs> How many passes were between the white team? 15. There were 15 passes from the white team. And a part of me goes, wow, I did it. You know, I really, I, I can count. I'm glad I passed through my childhood and uh, arrived at this destination. But unfortunately, the slide that gets you is that as soon as that disappears, another slide goes up that says, but did you notice the dancing gorilla? And sure enough, the video rewinds, and what you discover is in black, so a little bit camouflaged, but still quite obvious, there in the middle of the video walked a person dressed in a gorilla costume, walked through the middle, pumped their chest, walked off the screen, and as Daniel Stillman repeated this experiment thousands of times, he discovered that over 52% of the participants did not notice the gorilla walk through the game that was taking place. So Stillman's conclusion was that the phenomenon he was studying was called attention blindness. Attention blindness. You maybe have experienced this if you've ever watched a film, especially they've gotten better at it now, but some of the older movies, very bad bloopers or sort of, you know, mismatches take place, something's left on set, and yet few of us, in fact, Stillman would argue over 52% of us wouldn't notice because we're focused on something else. This often takes place in magic shows. I was just thinking, I love Christopher Nolan movies, Christopher Nolan as a director. This is what he does. He tells you to focus on something, and while you're focused on it, something else is moving in the background, and it's only at the end, in the unveiling, the reveal, you discover you had missed it. You were, your attention was focused on something else, and all the while, a dancing gorilla had been walking through the middle of the screen. Now. If you can't see where I'm going with this, let me bring it together. The reality is, in our disenchantment, as these struggles, as these problems, as these leaders fail us, as our old church communities fail us, as friendships let us down, as politics let us down, what begins to happen is we start focusing on the passes that are taking place, don't we? Or for some of us, if I could get a little more concrete, a little more real, I know for me, I start focusing on the likes that are passing back and forth, the tweets that are moving, the global catastrophes, the political scandals, the outrage. And as I'm counting these passes, my life is so focused on what's happening back and forth that I miss God, the dancing gorilla who walks right through the midst of my very own life. So my question for you then 
this morning is how do we focus our attention on the right thing? How do we focus our attention on God when we're so tempted to distraction, to attention blindness by all of these other balls that are being passed back and forth? The practice, the simple practice that I want to commend to you this morning is prayer as a form of embodied attention to God. This is what prayer at its heart is doing. It is calling your body to focus your attention not on the distractions of your life, the fears, the anxieties, the worries, the community around you, but rather prayer. Prayer is the profound act in which we use our bodies to focus our attention on God. So at the end of our time, uh, as Dave and I were talking about this journey, as we were talking about practices, Pastor Dave's encouragement was, why don't you do the practices together? So at the end of our time, I'm going to spend some time doing a prayer practice with you just to prepare you now. You won't be required to stand or move. No one will pay attention to you. So you can relax, take a deep breath. But just where you're sitting, uh, we'll go ahead and do a prayer time at the end so that we can practice this together. But in the meantime, I have about 15 minutes here to convince you, to put before you a compelling vision of why prayer is not just that practice, that sort of old pietistic relic that you were pressured with in your uh, Sunday school or your youth group or even now in church settings when you feel everyone sort of compelled to bow their head to pray. No, why prayer is going to be vital for you if you are going to move through disenchantment and return back to God. So, I promised you, when we talked about these practices, I wasn't going to present my practices. I wanted to talk to you about Jesus's practices. So let me run you through. Love to spend more time on these if we had it, but I'll just move quickly through them. I want to run you through the interesting phenomenon that particularly the Gospel of Luke will draw our attention to. Have you ever noticed before that at every single key moment of Jesus's life, Luke is going to tell us that Jesus was praying. I almost didn't believe it until I literally walked through and looked at it. Uh, track this with me. This is from Luke 3:21. Jesus is at a moment of new beginnings. He's about to be baptized. He's about to initiate his public ministry. This is a key moment. And we find in Luke 3:21 when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Let's keep moving in Jesus' life. A couple chapters later, Jesus is about to select the 12 disciples. This is the key moment of discernment for Jesus where he is going to choose the 12 apostles who will be his witnesses to the world, the one apostle who will eventually betray him. And what do we discover? Luke 6, verse 12. Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And then he's going to call the apostles up to the mountain to let them know that he's chosen them. We'll jump forward a few more chapters. This is now Luke 9, verse 18. Here, we're about halfway through Jesus' ministry. Uh, we're about to have the moment when Peter makes his confession. In the Gospels, this is the turning point where the disciples finally get it, where Peter, at least, finally gets it. For the first time, one of Jesus' disciples is going to connect the dot that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And what we find in Luke 9, verse 18 was that once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with them, he asked them, who do you say the crowds think that I am? 
I've got two more. We're almost done. Uh, this one really surprised me. I don't know why it surprised me. I just assumed uh, this was one of my, in my digging, I was like, surely I'm going to prove myself a fool here, and this moment will not be connected to prayer. But in Luke, the moment of transfiguration, the moment when Jesus goes on top of a mountain and glory is going to come down, he is going to be revealed. Moses and Elijah are going to appear. It's one of the most spectacular, supernatural moments in the Gospels, and we discover Luke 9, 28 to 29, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Final moment, and this, of course, will not surprise you when you connect the dots, but what does Jesus do in his moment of great suffering? The night Jesus is betrayed, the night Jesus will be crucified, we are told in Luke twenty-two forty-one, he, Jesus, withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus began to pray. Now, if you just stop for a moment and think about it, surely this doesn't surprise us. I, I'm almost, in some ways, stating the obvious. Jesus, Jesus prayed, and yet, as I've been wrestling with uh, my own faith, as I've been thinking about practices, I'm struck that for some reason, I don't always connect the dots, that Jesus, the son of the living God, was always praying. I mean, he's just always praying. This was for Jesus the life source of attention. This was how he focused on the Father. This was how he connected to the Father. This is his practice. This is what Jesus is doing all the time. He's always praying. And so, when we think about our own lives, when we think about any sort of practices that we're going to start to reestablish, my first practice that I hope to offer to you, the first vital practice I think you're going to need is prayer. However, it's at this point, I want to bring in my harshest critic. Uh, my biggest supporter in my life is most certainly my wife. Thankfully, she enjoys my preaching, uh, so that's, that's a good thing for our marriage. It's been a good thing for our life so far. But unfortunately for me, uh, my wife, who's very intelligent, very sharp, uh, is a mental health therapist, can also be my biggest critic. And unfortunately, as I was preparing this series, my wife sort of pressed into me as I was prepping the practice of prayer, and she said, John, I, I just don't like to pray. <laughs> I'm just not a big fan of prayer. Like, I pray. I know I should pray. Like, I care about prayer. You're going to tell me Jesus prayed. That's great. I really appreciate that Jesus really loved praying. But it just doesn't always resonate. I don't know how to, like, force prayer. I feel this pressure, like I'm supposed to pray every morning, and yet it's a lot of work. We've got kids now, John. Uh, how, do I, how do I return to prayer? That was my wife's question for me. So this morning, I just want to acknowledge the elephant in the room is that while all of us would probably say, if pressed, ah, oh, prayer, yes, very good, very important. For many of us, the challenge is how do we actually pray and why pray? What's a vision for what prayer is offering and doing for your faith? So I have two reasons why Jesus prayed and two ways that he prayed. I'm just going to go over these briefly. But my hope with this is, I, I just want to give you permission. If you're struggling with your prayer life, my challenge here is, is not, I've been in many churches, many communities. It's not a bad challenge, but uh, back at Willow Creek when I worked there, they would always talk about 15 minutes in your chair. Go pray for 15 minutes every morning. And that is a wonderful encouragement. You'll see how that's 
that's certainly connected. That could be a way that you practice prayer. But I just want to give a lot of space, especially as I'm talking about disenchantment, to say for all of us, our rhythms in life of prayer may need to be a little different depending on the seasons you're in, depending on whether you enjoy getting up in the morning, whether you stay up late at night, depending on where friendships and your own faith is at. And so I just want to give you space. If you need permission to figure out your own rhythm of prayer, that's great. Let me give you two principles that were guiding Jesus's life of prayer. And let me give you two ways that I saw, I see Jesus practicing it. The first vision is a tuning prayer, a tuning prayer. I use the word attuning intentionally because there is a theory in psychology. Uh, my wife is a mental health therapist. Uh, I love psychology. Uh, in psychology, there is a pioneer by the name of Richard Erskine that was working out what he called attunement theory in psychology. His theory, for all its complexity, could kind of be boiled down to this. As Erskine worked with people who just had a lot of pain and suffering in their life, he would talk about this sense wherein every person he would meet with as he was sort of studying the patterns of their pain and the need that they had for healing to restore their uh, either mental disorders or mental disruptions or relational brokenness, he would say that their life used to, at some point, have contact. So, so there is some way in which relationships were close, they were connected. Normally this starts with our parents. This can expand out into our friendships. This hopefully becomes our church community. But Erskine noted that pain is when contact is disrupted. Pain occurs when what used to be some close connection, maybe with a parent, with a friend, with a spouse, becomes disrupted either by hurt or unkind words or some sort of act of betrayal or maybe just distance, time. And as Erskine was working with people, he would particularly note that the the biggest pain he was really dealing with was not necessarily just a chemical malfunction in the brain. It actually was this relational malfunction where contact was disrupted. So Erskine's theory was, as a counselor, as a therapist, his job was to restore contact by offering attunement. Attunement. So I have the definition. You've probably read it behind me already. Erskine theorized that attunement goes beyond empathy it is a process of communion and unity of interpersonal contact. Attunement is an emotional sensing of others, knowing their rhythm, affect, and experience by metaphorically being in their skin and going beyond empathy to create a two-person experience of unbroken feeling connectedness. If any of you have had the chance to meet with a therapist, I've gone to therapy at several points, uh, have been really helped and healed by it. The, the horror or the idea behind most therapy that has followed Erskine, and many have, he's a pretty prominent theorist, is that in the therapeutic office, when you go in to meet with your therapist, their only job in some ways is to be there to sense you, to empathize with you, to connect to your experiences in such a way that where contact was previously disrupted, now you finally feel this sense of communion, unity, and feltness. So if you had pain that wasn't being acknowledged, someone finally hears you. If you had fears that weren't being addressed, someone is finally safe for you. If you were just 
anxious, someone could finally be there and acknowledge your anxiety, but be stable for you. This is why therapy can be so incredibly powerful. And yet, my wife would point out, as a therapist herself, most therapists see you about once a week, uh, if that, sometimes it's every other week. And my wife would say, the real problem with therapy, the reason why therapy often takes so long, is that there's just this short, condensed time of attunement. It's an hour a week that you finally have that contact restored where another person can sit with you, in you, and can know you. Really, what we're all longing for, what we all need, particularly in disenchantment, is an ongoing relationship of attunement. So, again, I, I think you're probably tracking with me here. I'm struck that Jesus, as he would retreat to pray, uh, we're told particularly in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus would withdraw in the early morning out to a desolate place to pray. I, I've often asked myself, what is it that Jesus was doing during that prayer? What do you think was happening in that prayer? Why did Jesus need that prayer? Well, I highlight attunement to you because I think Jesus was withdrawing from the distractions of his life so that he could attune with the Father. Now, that, that sounds maybe kind of mysterious, sort of mystical. I think it, it actually helps me to sort of envision therapy. If, again, if any of you have gone to therapy, therapy, you sit down and you're just in conversation with someone who really cares about you, who is a close friend. And sometimes there's back and forth. Sometimes you're asking questions. Sometimes you're presenting needs. Sometimes you're making requests. Often they can offer guidance. Sometimes they're speaking into your life. Sometimes they're challenging you. Sometimes they're directing you, especially after trust has been built. But imagine if you could receive that kind of attunement with your heavenly Father. It, it's almost audacious. It's in particularly our secular age where if we're being honest, all of us need therapy, right? All of us need help with this inner world, this mess of identity that we're trying to work out like we talked about last week. Can you imagine if you had access to your heavenly father whose focal point of relationship was to be attuned to you. I'll just read this definition of attunement again. Attunement is an emotional sensing of the other, knowing their rhythm, affect, and experience by metaphorically being in their skin. Uh, I haven't had a chance to look into Erskine's background, but that sounds very Christological to me, doesn't it? It sounds like a heavenly father who knows everything about you, and wants to be with you wherever you are, but also push you, encourage you, guide you on out of where you're currently stuck. So what would a tuning prayer look like for you? What would it look like if you could take seriously the offer, the offer of your heavenly father to attune to you? I, I think the good starting point is just figuring out a rhythm could be every day, could be once a week, could be a day during the week, a rhythm of retreat, a rhythm where you find a place. Notice Jesus was very aware of the place. It was a, it was a desolate place, free of distractions. Timing was important. Jesus was connecting to it early in the morning, whatever timing makes sense for you. But what if this week you could have 
a sense of attunement to your heavenly Father. I believe your Father wants to attune to you. If we go to the next verse, Jesus has this incredible statement that he makes. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. This is the fruit of attunement when we look at Jesus' life. This is why Jesus was always praying. Jesus was mirroring and understanding, sensing, receiving sense by the Father. And out of that love, Jesus was able to go and imitate what the Father was giving him to the world. It's a tuning prayer. Let me give you one other sense of prayer before we close with our exercise. And that would be abiding prayer. I've got a tuning prayer. Forgive me for the alliteration, but I've got abiding prayer as well. This is built off of Jesus' directive in John 15, where Jesus is going to say to us, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians, according to the message, is going to follow up this sense of abiding that Jesus gives us, this invitation to abide in him by saying, pray all the time. <laughs> Pray continuously. Just keep praying. Keep abiding. Keep drawing your attention back to the Father. I think we sometimes get fixated on the withdrawing, the retreating aspect of prayer, that we miss the need, the need throughout our day-to-day -day life to just keep drawing our attention back to the Father. But as I say all of this, I know this verse in particular in 1 Thessalonians has often felt quite heavy to me. Pray all the time. How, how would one go about praying all the time? Are you meant to have some sort of superpower? I think we sometimes look at uh, priests or nuns or monasteries and we just assume they have some special something, some internal gift that allows them to just keep chugging away at prayer. But we, we, us mere mortals, we have real obligations. We have distracting lives and families and friends and jobs. How could we ever keep praying all the time, keep abiding in Jesus? Um, I, a few years back, had a mentor, a pastor, who offered me this really practical advice. It stuck with me. I've shared it a number of times, and every time I do, I love that my, the response is, oh, that's, that's actually quite helpful. Uh, the pastor's advice was this. We often get stuck in our prayer life by assuming that prayer is just a mental activity, that somehow our, our spirit, this sort of invisible soul, spirit, essence of who we are that for most of us is somewhere up in our minds, probably what we think, our thought life, that somehow if we could just keep channeling that invisible thought to God through an act of sheer will, then maybe we too could become some sort of super monastic Christian. But instead, this pastor's advice was, why not use your body that God has given you to connect your spirit of prayer to your attention and drawing it back to God. So here's what he suggested. 
if you simply activate your body whenever you're distracted, whenever you're transitioning in spaces, whenever you've got a big important meeting ahead of you or there's some crisis going on in your life. In fact, he would say that before every pastoral encounter, every pastoral care meeting that he would set up, he would simply make a small sign of the cross wherever he felt he needed it most. So let me give you the example. Uh, sign of the cross with his thumb was just the small gesture on his forehead that reminded him, Lord, be with my mind. Guide my thoughts in this moment. And that was it. A small sign right there on his forehead. People wouldn't even notice most of the time. But he said occasionally there would be a, a crisis moment and sort of a relationship counseling scenario. And he would just make a small sign right there to remind his mind to draw its attention back to God. Similarly, he would sometimes say that he would mark his lips. Lord, guide what I'm about to say. He would mark his heart. I had a season uh, following this advice where I was working at a bank. It was a very mundane job. Uh, the pay was good. It was quite boring, though. It was just sort of a long, hard season. I felt very spiritually dry. And as I was going in the rhythms of work at the bank, I started just this practice of making the sign of the cross on my body every time I got out of the car to enter into the bank. And then every night as I'd return to the car, just in that transition trigger, I'd make a sign to just remind myself, Lord, be present with me in this challenging season. Lord, be present with me in this challenging work. Lord, be present to me in the relationships I have going on here. Now, I realize I've just said and made the sign of the cross. I, we don't know each other that well. I haven't been here that long. Uh, the sign of the cross can be a little bit triggering for some. My father grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, didn't have a particularly good experience of it. And so to this day, my father is horrified. If he's watching at home, he probably isn't. Uh, would not have liked that I just made the sign of the cross. So if that's you, that's fine. Uh, let me commend one other sign to you, a way to engage your body. Uh, I grew up in more of a Baptistic tradition, and in Sunday school we learned that the sign language for Jesus was quite simply to touch right in the middle of your hands, the place where the nails would have pierced Jesus' hand. Now, uh, if you want to get into some profound, holy moments, uh, my daughter recently has been learning the song, Jesus Loves Me, which is a little bit emotional for my wife and I. We're like working through a lot of things as we're teaching her this simple song. And yet, as she, of course, loves sign language, she loves signs to any songs, we're just teaching her the sign that Jesus loves me, this I know. And for the past number of years, I've found, particularly if the sign of the cross is a little bit intense for you, this sign just can be done casually, can be done quietly. I'll occasionally, when I'm feeling anxious, just tap the middle of my hands. And what I'm doing is reminding my body, reminding my body that my heart, my faith, is committed to Christ. That I am in Christ and that Christ is in me. And that this sign, just this small act, this is my prayer. This is my body engaging in prayer, and by drawing that attention, particularly, I know sometimes these signs can get overused, sometimes they can become just empty, meaningless rites, but I can promise you, if you haven't been doing this in a while, you will think about God when you go to make one of these signs. And so, just practically, if there's a tuning prayer sometime this week that you could find a rhythm where you draw away 
and have a therapy session with your heavenly father. Invite the attuning voice of your heavenly father to hear you and to speak into you. And then as you go, as you're working this week, as you're busy this week, as you're distracted this week, moments in your life where you can either make a small sign with your body to remind you, to remind your attention, to return to that dancing gorilla who is perhaps even now moving through your life, to remind you to return to God. This is the first practice that will begin to reorient your attention. You will start to stop focusing on the passes, counting the ball, moving back and forth between the competing teams, and you will instead start to look around and wonder, is the dancing gorilla going to appear? So I want to just practice this together before we move to the table. I'm going to invite John up, uh, wherever John is. There you are. Um, This this is a, a way for us together as a community to focus and to practice, to try this out before we go into the week. I'm about to go with you through a 10-minute prayer exercise that's called the sign of the cross meditation. And again, I, I realize some of us have a little bit of sign of the cross anxiety, so here's my encouragement to you. We're not going to make the sign of the cross until the end. And if you, forever, for whatever reason, don't feel like doing it, there's no pressure to do so. But instead, we're going to use the cross to guide a time of prayer. And so as we use the cross, we're going to pray over our minds, invite the Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father to speak. We're going to pray over our hearts to invite the Son, Jesus, uh, to connect to us in our hearts. And then in the final movement, we're going to go to the left shoulder. We're going to invite the Holy Spirit to reflect with us on our past, almost as if our shoulders are a timeline of our life. And then as we move across our past, we're going to invite the Spirit to guide us into our future. That's all we're going to be doing. Um, And this is a prayer that hopefully as we do this together, I've given you now a couple different options this week for you to return, to pick up these practices of Jesus. And then at the end, after having reflected on the cross, we're going to turn to the table and Steph is going to lead us. So go ahead and close your eyes. Get comfortable in your seat. I often encourage people to just put both feet on the ground. Maybe even rest your hands right now gently on your legs. It's always helpful when starting a time of prayer to just take a deep breath in and to hold it for two or three seconds. And then slowly breathe out again. Take another deep breath in. Just connect to your breathing for a moment. Notice what's taking place in your body as you breathe. Are you feeling anxious? Are you feeling energized? Is your faith stirring or is your heart filled with fear? Wherever you are, as you breathe in, invite the presence of the living God to fill you, the spirit of the living God. And as you breathe out, exhale any anxieties you've been carrying, any fears that are still lingering. As we begin this prayer practice, go ahead and place your right hand gently on your forehead. As we pray over our minds, we invite the voice of our Heavenly Father who is attuned to us already 
to speak into our minds, to guide and direct our thoughts. And now in the quiet of the Sunday morning, what thoughts does your heavenly Father want to share with your mind? we bring our minds before the Lord, what thoughts have you had this week? Maybe thoughts of the divine, thoughts of the sacred. What thoughts have filled your mind that were ordinary and yet important? What thoughts even now fill your mind with chaos or fear? Where has your brain perhaps been working against you, misfiring over into anxiety, depression, disappointment, and distraction? Even now, Lord, we pray that all the functions of our mind, all that goes on inside our brains, might be dedicated to you and that your spirit would speak even now to our minds. Come, Lord, and speak, we pray. And gently move your hand down to your heart. Just rest it over the center of your chest. As we pray in the name of the Son who was wounded so that all of our wounds might one day be healed and made whole, we invite the Son to press his hand over our hearts, to pour his love into our hearts, to pour the love that he heard and knew from his heavenly Father as the love of assurance forgiveness and grace into your heart. Even now, it is not just the Father who speaks, but also the Son. What words does the Son want to speak into your heart this morning? Where has the Son been with you in your emotions can the sun free you this morning, release you into the joy of your salvation this morning. We bring our hands now to our left shoulder and gently rest it upon it. Holy Spirit, who hovered over the waters of creation. You know our lives. You hold our memories. Even now, Holy Spirit, you know our disappointments and disenchantments. 
even as you see all of the holy and sacred moments of God scattered across our life, where has the Spirit stirred? What memories do you need this morning to remind you of God's movement in your life? What gifts has God given you? shoulder. We invite you, Spirit, to move with us into our future. Lord of all time, who knows our futures even as you know our pasts, we ask for encouragement and hope this morning. Reminders of your presence and assurance comfort of your spirit to guide us into your future. Even now, even as you just think about this upcoming week, what words does the spirit want to whisper to you this morning? What guidance does the spirit want to offer? you have taught us how to pray. Thank you, Lord, for this gift of prayer that we can both attune and abide, that your spirit is with us, and that even now you want to speak to us. Thank you for this love and this gift of your presence, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can put your hands down, although I will close us here in just a moment by inviting us together to do the sign of the cross. Uh, my encouragement again to you this week is to practice prayer, whatever that means this week. Could prayer be the first gift of God back to you out of your disenchantment as you follow Jesus? And as we move now to the table, I just wanna draw your attention one final time to the sign we just made, the sign of the cross, the sign that embraces both the gift of God's love for you in Jesus Christ, Jesus' gift of sacrificial love to you, and yet also the call, this invitation that you, in following Jesus, would pick up the cross and would walk with Jesus and his cross through your own life. So if you're ready and if you're not, that's totally fine. Feel free to sit back and relax. But I'm going to invite you now to make a slow sign of the cross with me as we pray in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit.
Amen.